Today is our final sermon in this sermon series, Windows into Christ's Birth, and today's window that we peer through is the gospel according to Luke. About 10% of Luke's gospel is devoted to telling us the story of Jesus' birth. We will hear how the birth of Jesus is announced this morning to his mother, Mary. So listen for Mary's reaction. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. May God bless this reading to our understanding. What causes you to tremble? What shortens your breath? What causes your palms to suddenly sweat? What gives you that pit in your stomach and you know you are afraid? Two of our church staff members ended up on the same airplane flight home for the Thanksgiving holidays. Both of them had family in the same part of Texas, and it when it was time to board their flight here in Kansas City, they realized because it was a Southwest flight, they could choose to sit next to one another. One of them is a veteran flyer, and the other is a novice flyer who is quite terrified of flying. They were sitting next to each other, enjoying some small talk when the plane encountered some unexpected turbulence. I mean, the kind of turbulence that makes folks on the plane start to shout and scream. The veteran flyer reached over, placed her hand on the novice flyer, her office mate, to calm her the rest of the way through their bumpy flight. What makes you afraid this morning? Millions of mothers and grandmothers, children and spouses are sitting in makeshift houses, trembling in fear because they do not know if their Ukrainian sons and husbands and fathers will survive the bombs and the artillery that Russia is pummeling Ukraine with in that war that is now approaching the one-year mark. Now, fear doesn't have to be rational. A few weekends ago, my husband and I hosted the annual Amon Grandchildren Christmas Sleepover. 
after the ornament making, the cookie baking, the Christmas movie, the hot cocoa, they all settle down to sleep in the mattresses strewn across the basement floor. And I went upstairs exhausted, but I couldn't sleep. My eyes were wide open, staring at the ceiling, thinking things like, what if the hot water heater has a backdraft causing carbon monoxide? And what if the carbon monoxide detector's batteries are weak? And, 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 and I could not sleep a wink. And my husband looked so comfortable sleeping next to me. Fear doesn't have to be rational. Dave and I just watched the Netflix series From Scratch, which is based on a true story about a young woman from Texas who travels to Florence, Italy to study art. And of course, she falls in love with an Italian. It, it started out so lighthearted. We thought, oh, this will be so fun to see the Italian countryside and to learn more about Italian cuisine. But suddenly, like that, it got serious. In one scene, the man sneaks off to the doctor to get a scan because he wonders if the cancer might have returned. But he doesn't tell his wife he's going for the scan, and she's emptying the trash, and she notices the hospital admittance bracelet. Why didn't you tell me, she asks him. He said, because I didn't want you to be afraid. I didn't want to worry you. Everything's going to be okay. But the truth is, we are afraid. And when you and I tremble in fear, we are in good company. The folks in the Bible seem to be afraid a lot. If you go to one of those Bible search engines and you type in the phrase, be not afraid, you will find that that phrase pops up dozens of times throughout the Old and New Testament. In the first book of the Bible, Abraham is greeted by God. Abraham is told to go to a new place. And God's opening line to Abraham is, don't be afraid. And then in the middle of the Old Testament, when the political situation is tense and the nation is experiencing great upheaval, the prophets write to God's people and they say, now do not be afraid. And in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, we hear in the opening chapter that the people tremble as they sense that they are in the presence of God and they are told, don't be afraid. And when Luke tells Luke's Christmas story about the birth of the infant Jesus in that lowly stable, Luke uses this phrase three times in the opening two chapters, do not be afraid. First, there is this elderly man, Zechariah, in the temple. He's there doing what he always does, lighting the candle, reading the scriptures, when he hears a voice saying, be not afraid, but your wife, Elizabeth, who is barren, is about to have a child in your old age. And he is so flabbergasted with the news that he is struck mute for nine months until the day comes when he holds his newborn son, John. And then an angel appears to Mary, who is engaged but not yet married, and brazenly announces to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. The Lord is with you. You will conceive a child. Well, this leaves Mary feeling perplexed, confused, and she pushes back to the angel, Oh, how can this be? 
And then a whole host of angels come to some shepherds who are out tending their flocks by night, and the angels sing, do not be afraid. Well, of course they're afraid. The shepherds are quaking in their boots and absolutely terrified. But they're also a bit excited to think that their miserable existence out sleeping in a muddy field among the stinky straw just might give them a front row seat to something that God is doing that all their kinfolk back in the city sleeping in their warm beds will miss on that holy night. I suspect that Luke wrote, Be Not Afraid, three times in the opening two chapters of the gospel because Luke knew that the people who first heard this good news, the first century Christians, were all terribly afraid. They were afraid of being taxed to death by Rome, afraid of landing in debtor's prison, afraid that they would be persecuted or at least ridiculed for following a savior who had been crucified. Now, they had faith, but they were definitely afraid, sorely afraid. The Gospel of Luke is the longest of all the stories of Jesus' birth, three times as long as Matthew's story. Over these last four weeks, we have looked at various perspectives on the birth of Jesus that come from our scriptures. On the first week of Advent, Mike showed us something I suspect most of us, maybe all of us, had never thought about before, from the book of Revelation, where Jesus, the son of Mary, comes to save the people from the violence of this world. And then we looked at John's gospel, where there is no baby Jesus, but there is this cosmic light that has been with God from the beginning of time that finally comes to pitch a tent among us. It's a more mystical story of Jesus coming into our world. And then last week, we looked at Matthew's pageant, where Joseph is the leading actor, and Mary does barely appear in the narrative, maybe just a little bit, as supporting actress. But the key drama in Matthew's story of Christmas is when the Magi come. And the only time we really see the infant Jesus is when they offer gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. But Luke, the longest version, it doesn't even mention the Magi. Instead, it mentions shepherds and barely a mention of Joseph, but Mary plays the leading role, and the supporting actress is her cousin Elizabeth, who is far too old to have a child, and yet, defying all possibilities, seems to also be expecting. What is it that Luke wants to say to us with Luke's unique perspective on the birth of Jesus? Luke tells us, be not afraid, but here's, here's the crazy part. What everyone is afraid of in Luke's story is not bad news. It's not about plane turbulence. It's not about a scary event. No, it's good news that they're afraid of. Why would anyone be afraid of the announcement that God is on the way, that God is about to arrive, that life is coming to them, that joy has been born? As we heard the story from the women at Sheffield Place, sometimes we are not ready to hear the good news. A friend of mine got a job offer this last year. 
he was going to be making three times his current salary. It was going to be a great career advancement opportunity. But when he was offered the job, his first thought was, oh no, can I really do it? Am I up for it? He was afraid. I read a novel last year called The Knicks. It's about a young man who is heartbroken and kind of meandering through life, lost. I mean, he, he works, he does all the things the person is supposed to do, but he's just overshadowed by grief because when his parents divorced when he was very young, his mother left his life. He doesn't even know if she's still alive. And just her absence haunts him. But he, he learns that she is alive, that she wants to see him, that she wants a relationship with him. And his first thought is not joy, but fear and danger. Sometimes the truth may be good news, but it leaves us wondering if this good news breaks out in our lives, could it change us? Could it change our lives? Two images then come to my mind about how we respond to the inbreaking good news of God coming into our midst. One image comes from the trip that Dave and I took this fall to Greece. We visited this little island called Tinos. Few Americans ever choose Tinos as a vacation site, but many Greeks go there every year because on this island, there is a church where a miracle took place in 1823. It seems that in the Greek Orthodox monastery that was on this island, that there was a nun who frequently had dreams about Mary. And in one of those dreams, Mary told her that there was a precious icon buried there on the island. And in the dream, Mary showed her where it was. She awakened from the dream, she went and she found that spot and she dug and she found the icon and everyone was so amazed by the miracle that they built an entire church around it. And now thousands of Greek Orthodox Christians come there every year just to visit this sacred site. Well, it was in the tour book and I knew we should visit it, but neither of us was all that intrigued by this miracle story. But we went, we saw the church, we saw the icon, it was pretty. And then we turned around to leave the church and we saw some pilgrims getting off of the ferry and making their way up the cobblestone street in the bright sun, about three quarters of a mile walk, walking on their knees in an attitude of prayer. And it, it just startled me to see their devotion, but I wasn't sure, is that what God asks of us? Does God diminish us and ask us to walk humbly on our knees? The other image is from a woman that I met on the Camino. We were walking towards this sacred site in Spain when we met Christiane. She was from Canada in her mid-70s. I was walking with my friends the short route that's about a week. Christiane was walking all alone the long route, which takes some people about four weeks, but was taking her about six weeks. We met Christiane about 
mm, seven miles from the finish line, and she told us her whole story about her painful divorce, about her change in career, about the bus accident that hit her in the legs and left her unable to walk, about her very long rehab, and then she decided she would stand tall and she would walk the entire Camino, the route by herself that goes over the Pyrenees. And she told us about her entire journey, about the day that she got so tired that she didn't think she could take another step. And she sat down in the pouring down rain in a wide open field and ate her peanut butter and jelly sandwich in a plastic bag and then got up and kept going. Christiane clearly had such amazing courage and conviction and we just kept saying, Christiane, we can't believe you're doing this. You're almost there. How did you do this? And she said, ah, I'm just trying to pay attention to all the light that is inside of me. Now here, I think, is the courage that God wants us to exhibit, to listen to God. I don't believe that God comes to diminish us, but to make us more fully who we are. We don't need to be afraid because God isn't coming among us to rob us of life, but to bless us with the fullness of life. Hail, favored one, the angel speaks to Mary. You are God's favored ones. Good news. God invites us to live fully in the light of God's grace. I love a poem that is written by Denise Levertoff. I think her version of what happened to Mary is really compelling. Her poem is called The Annunciation, The Announcement to Mary. And, and what she's trying to say, I think, in this poem is that Mary is not so passive. She's not a pushover. Here's a line from the poem. But we are told of meek obedience. No one mentions courage. The engendering spirit did not enter her without consent. God waited. She was free to accept or to refuse choice integral to humanness. The story of Mary, you see, it affirms that Mary had a choice. You can see it. She talks back to the angel. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. How can this be? I don't, I don't even have a husband. Only at the end of the dialogue with the angel does Mary say, let it be. Here I am. First, Mary ponders. Mary thinks it over. Mary questions. Only at the end does Mary decide to receive the good news that is coming. Only at the end does she say, let it be. I don't know about you, but I have always wondered if God approached a number of other women before coming across Mary. How many of them said, no way, no how? But Mary musters the courage to say yes. Levertov wonders in her poem if all of us might be having annunciations that come into our lives whispers of angels to go maybe a new direction in life, but sometimes we are just not ready. We are just unwilling. But then, the poet says, God does not smite them. God is still with us. Even when we say no, even when we are not ready, 
God still loves us, still lingers with us, still hangs out with us. I have always admired Levertov's poetry, this poem as well as others that she writes, but only recently did I learn that this poet was born the daughter of a Hasidic Jewish man. He converted to Christianity. She did not. She became a professor of poetry at Tufts. Only when she was 60 years old did she convert to Christianity. And so her story echoes Mary's reticence. We have a choice. God announces, but we choose whether or not we receive the good news. Sometimes we're just too afraid. Sometimes we don't have the courage to say yes to God. And other times, all of us are empowered to exhibit Mary's unparalleled courage to accept the good news and to say, yes, let it be, let it be. We need not be afraid because whether we trust God or whether we don't, God still comes to be with us. We need not walk on our knees because God calls us to bravely see all the light that is within us.